0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the director Seminar Series at the Fairbanks Centre. I am Winnie Yip, the Acting Director of the Centre for this year. Today, we are very honoured to have Professor Marty White to talk to us about China's hukou system. Um, it is, in fact, a topic that is very much um, a centre of discussion in the recent two sessions. And so we're very um, delighted to have um, Professor Wei share his uh, wisdom and research with us on that topic. I think Professor Wei doesn't need much um, uh, introduction. Many of you know him. He was a faculty here actually in the Department of Sociology from 2000 to 2015 and uh, retired in 2015. He was actually a former director of the Fairbank Center. His research interests include comparative sociology, sociology of the family, of development of contemporary China and also um, the study of post-communist transitions. And um, without further ado, I'm going to turn this over to Marty. And for the audience, if you have questions, please type it in the Q&A box and we will come to that um, uh, address your questions after Marty gave his talk. So over to you, Marty.
1: Thank you very much, Winnie. Uh, it's very nice to be here. And before I start my actual talk, I wanna say a few words in honor of Ezra Vogel, who um, uh, I assume everybody in the audience knows, unfortunately died in at age 90 in December. Uh, and Ezra was my former teacher, mentor, colleague, close friend I first came to Harvard in the mid-1960s uh, as to enter the master's program in Russian studies. And I decided, well, you know, there's this other communist giant, China. Maybe I should do look into that too. So I took Ezra's survey course on Contemporary Chinese Society in 1965. And uh, I began to get hooked and uh, I became a graduate student in social relations. Sociology was still then part of this interdisciplinary department, and I was encouraged to start Chinese language study by Ezra. Uh, He even taught one language, Chinese documents, Chinese communist documents course as an overload, and uh, not just for me, but for a lot of others. So Ezra from the very beginning was very encouraging that I could make the switch, and I'm so I wouldn't be, <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to make a career mainly studying China if it had not been for the extraordinary support and encouragement I got from Ezra. And then when I returned on the faculty, he was again, very supportive. I I wanna say that even though I returned after he had retired, I was not a replacement for Ezra Vogel. He was of course, irreplaceable. So, um, And, and <clears throat> so, and he remained extraordinarily creative and vital right up until the end. And I I often tell people uh, in the 55 years that I knew him, he was uh, the most important person of my life besides my immediate family. And sometimes some of the members of my immediate family, uh, I'm not too sure about that comparison. So anyway, I, I miss him greatly and I am uh, uh, I can't claim to be, in his footsteps, he was a great mentor. He didn't, he wasn't like John Fairbank apparently was, who was a kind of a his, the drill sergeant of Chinese studies that directed the lives of his students. Ezra sort of encouraged us to follow our own muse and so forth and I'm very grateful to that and I miss him greatly. So anyway, but he's not responsible if you don't like my talk today. <laughs> anyway, let me start now uh, by, What happened to my sharing screen? Uh, Here we go. There we go. All right. So um, uh, I'm having trouble getting, oh, there we go. Okay. So anyway, I, Rural-urban relations and the hukou system is something that the paradoxes of which I've been puzzling over since the early 1980s. Um, And uh, I actually, more than a decade ago, organized the Fairbanks Center Conference, and Winnie ended up contributing a chapter on rural-urban gap in health status and access to medical care in the PRC. It's called One Country, Two Societies, Rural-Urban Inequality in Contemporary China. But it's still so important and it's still so puzzling and paradoxical that I keep wrestling with it. And my talk today is an expansion of uh, my most recent brief online piece, which I published a couple of years ago, which has the same title. Now I've expanded that into a a full uh, talk. Um, And basically, it seems to me the treatment of China's rural population or rural origin population is... It's changed in dramatic ways over the time from 1949 onward. And it's a major influence on how well China can develop. And I'm gonna discuss these changes and particularly the most recent changes. And briefly looking ahead, I'm gonna be arguing that that in the Mao era, for the most part, rural-urban relations were poorly managed and were a drag on development, hindered China's development. They came up, became, if anything, the central engine of development in the Chinese economic boom after 1978, but since about 2010, for reasons that you may be aware of, and I'll go into more detail near the end, they've become a drag on development again, so that's the nature of what I'm talking about. And it, from the very beginning of my work on this topic, it's, it's just seemed to me so full of paradoxes here. Mao from the countryside, he came to power organizing a peasant revolution. Army, as we know, uh, didn't control any cities until very late in the day. And then in the first decade in power, many rural origin cadres were promoted into power. But nonetheless, under Mao, The the rural population suffered greatly and in many ways it's still very systematically discriminated against right up until the present so how to come to grips with that. Um, In my thinking about it there are these five stages and I'm not going to go into them all in great detail I'm only going to briefly talk about the first couple of stages. Um, But um, anyway, that's, that's the format of what I'm going to talk about in terms of chronological development here. So the first stage, of course, is from late Imperial China into Republican China. Now it's clear China was then a very unequal social order. The Chinese Communist Party describes it as a feudal or neo-feudal society, but the Chinese social order at the time didn't have anything in common with feudalism as we know it from Europe and uh, and maybe even uh, medieval Japan. Uh, so, there were no legal barriers to peasants leaving uh changing occupations and so forth. You have a lot of migration competition. China historically of course, had a hukou system, but like lots of societies like France, like Japan, you know lots of taiwan have have household registration systems, but they don 't limit where people 's ability to move. They just keep track of people you have to if you move, you have to report to the government that you 're now living in a different place. America's unusual, we, we, don't, we don't keep track of people like that. But most many other societies have Hukou systems and Imperial China did as well. Um, there's also a substantial literature and it's also one of the chapters in the conference volume that I held up by Han Chaolu talks about the fact that China, there's an argument to be made that in late Imperial China, there was less of a status gap and, and less discrimination Uh, between urbanites and rural people than there was in early modern Europe. And there were a lot of things that tied people uh, to their rural places of origin, uh, had frequent contact, went back for festivals, sometimes retired, even if they moved, spent most of their lives in the city and so forth. So it can be argued that there is not the, the kind of denigration of rural people that exists in the PRC is not a historical holdover. It's something that was developed mostly under Mao, I will argue. The the I, Bill Skinner used to use this, uh, the, the famous anthropologist of China, used to use this diagram in his classes, and I kind of stole it from him and got permission to use it, and I'm not going to go into the great detail, but this is supposed to be stratification and late traditional Chinese society. The emperor, you can see, is the tiny speck way up at the top, so it's a huge, very unequal place, but the the main point for the purposes today is the dotted lines separating, you know, land owning, non land owning peasants and, and you know merchants and so forth. So there was mobility up and down. People were not stuck in inherited caste status, except at the very top in, with the imperial house and at the very bottom with boat people and other mean hereditary groups at the very bottom, but were a small part of the population. Now, even more briefly, in the first decade in power, there were lots of new opportunities. Uh, and uh, of course, um, you know, pe- people came in, the ex- government expanded, there were many new job opportunities, socialist transformation occurred, you had the, a much more complicated bureaucracy was needed. So there were many opportunities for people to move from the countryside into the cities in the first decade, but already in the early 1950s, the party was began to be concerned about so-called blind migration to the cities. And this eventually resulted in very strict rules, which I'm sure most of you know about in 1958, that divided the population into agricultural versus non-agricultural household registrations. And this was an inherited status that went in all your personal documents. Uh, and furthermore, if you had an agricultural hukou, you were basically forbidden to voluntarily decide to leave and migrate into a town or city. Uh, you could only migrate if you if you were a youth and passed the college entrance exam, or uh, you know some other conditions. A, a factory was being opened near you, and they needed more workers. You get permission, but for the most part, people were bound to the soil, uh, the, the vast portion of the Chinese population. Um, now, this was, the 1950 rules were immediately swamped when the Great Leap arose because 20, 20 million, apparently, new urban migrants came into the cities and, and the party thought they would be needed for this great economic boom that was gonna occur. But when the great economic boom collapsed into a mass famine then the 20 million people were essentially mobilized to leave the cities and go back to their rural places of origin. So it's really from about 1960 onward that you have this very, what what are called invisible walls. So here's a picture before that with sort of migrants sort of eating uh, on the street, a random picture. Camwin Chan, a geographer at the University of Washington, is sort of the probably the leading guru on the huko system in the prc this is a book he published already in the mid-1990s cities with invisible walls to talk about the development of this very near impenetrable system so that brings us up to the third stage the state socialist system from the late 1950s onward so China, as you all know, followed the Soviet Union in collectivizing agriculture in the mid 1950s, and then in after 1958 they merged the AP the agricultural producers cooperatives into communes. And the the logic behind doing that stems back to the writings of uh, somebody in your trade, Winnie, a Bolshevik economist named Yevgeny Preobrazhensky, who coined the term primitive socialist accumulation, and I. I Don't have time to go into it in great detail, but the basic idea is what are you gonna do if you're a poor agrarian society and you're furthermore cut off from the outside world in terms of trade and investment and so forth. You're trying to do bootstraps development and and how are you gonna feed growing cities and invest in industry? And the basic idea is you have to collectivize agriculture and then produce a mandatory procurement system so you can feed the cities. But it was also assumed that having larger, more rationally organized uh, agricultural organizations would make it possible to raise yields and improve popular diets. Well, the procurement part worked very well, or sometimes much too well, in both the Soviet Union and China. But the raising productivity and yields uh, worked terribly, um, and in China it 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 would involved a much more total ban on rural to urban migration than occurred in the Soviet Union. So in China, I have argued, and I can elaborate on it some today, that the result in the People's Communes was a system of socialist serfdom with Chinese peasants bound to the soil like medieval European serfs. Kolhosniki and the Soviet Union were not socialist serfs. uh, So in the 30 years, both countries started out at the time of their revolutions with less than 20% of the population living in cities after 30 years in china there was the there was 20% of the population living in cities in the soviet union close to 50% were living in the cities by the late 1940s so uh, and in china you have this all kinds of weird things as a result. Shanghai, the largest city and the largest developing society in the world, had fewer people residing in the city in 1978 than it did in the late 1950s. Who ever heard of a developing country in which the largest city actually shrinks in population? Uh, So this to me is a, you know, supreme irony of the revolution that I've been wrestling with, as I say, for decades, that Mao Zedong, the supposed champion of social equality, produced this system which really, and despite all kinds of propaganda and slogans, uh, made this system of socialist serfdom. Here's a picture of Mr. Perego the primitive socialist uh, accumulation guy. You notice the death date, 1937, Stalin had him executed along with millions of others in the great purges of the mid 1930s, apparently because he thought he was a little too close to Mr. Trotsky. And three years later, of course, Stalin had Trotsky executed in his exile in Mexico. So these communist party run systems, they're pretty tough on losers. So here's a propaganda poster of the time. And as you can see, it says, you know, Communism is heaven, and the people's commune is the bridge to get us to heaven. And here you see the uh, Chinese people happily marching toward uh, the communist heaven. Uh, Unfortunately, as you all know, it didn't quite work out that way. So what are the problems of collectivized agriculture? Now, these are quite familiar from others, but basically there's the faulty assumption that employing a large industrial model would complicated divisions of labor to organize intensive agriculture, the kind that existed in China, would result in increased farm output. So in both countries, you have these severe famines, China's of course, many more people died than in the Ukraine famine of the early 1930s. But even at best after recovery, uh, collectivized agriculture never met expectations in terms of yields and popular diets and so forth. In the case of China, at the end of the Mao period, there was very strict urban rationing. People, you know, couldn't, even in the cities, they couldn't get enough to eat. People were chronically hungry and couldn't get enough cooking oil, enough meat, and other kinds of things. They, you know, they, they weren't starving anymore the way they were in the Great Leap Famine, but nonetheless. Another faulty assumption involved was you wanted to avoid the rural brain grain by keeping young and talented people from leaving farming and going off into the towns and cities. Well, it ignores the fact that all over the world, and this is the lesson I learned from another former teacher, Dwight Perkins, who then later became a colleague in Harvard. One of the best ways to foster rural development is to allow young and ambitious rural residents to migrate and take up more productive forms of employment in the towns and cities, open up new opportunities there for relatives and friends, send back remittances and so forth. So all of this happens in China, of course, after 1978, but Mao and his colleagues wouldn't allow it to happen during the state socialist economy period. So the result of this was actually low farm productivity, devastating poverty in most of the countryside, and a huge rural urban income gap. We don't have very good statistics from the period, but the best estimates are that there was something like a th- urban average family had three t- times as high an income as the rural average family a- at the end of the Mao era which is we don't have good statistics on this from other countries around the world but it's very high if not the highest in the world and despite all of the uh, uh, you know prejudice all of the uh, you know propaganda about how you know industry serving agriculture lo- lowering the three great differences and all of those kinds of things in fact what happened was That the huge gap and the binding to the soil of the countryside helped to reinforce prejudice against people in the countryside. Furthermore, the fact that you could lose your urban registration be sent down to the countryside as more than 17 million urban educated youths were in the decade after 1968 increased the uh, sense of prejudice, even though it was the official propaganda tried to say this was a glorious effort. So uh, here's a promising young uh, laborer in the countryside. You may recognize this gentleman in front, that's Xi Jinping. Uh, although I'm told this is not during the seven years when he was sent down youth in Shanxi, but later when he was a, a local communist party official in a rural county in Hebei, that he was participating in agricultural labor. But you know, anyway, he, he makes it sound like it's a fun thing to do, but uh, obviously it didn't really work out uh, to improve agriculture in China. But despite all of the problems, that the collectivized agriculture doesn't really work, especially for the kind of intensive, you know, grain growing uh, kind of activity for a, a society like China with a huge population. Uh, but there were some major improvements that occurred within the commune system that would have positive implications for the reform era. One was, and these again, things we all know about uh, from Winnie's research and many other people on the health front, there were major improvements in health. People were living longer, the the population, the the peasants, including young rural people were healthier and able to work better. There was also basically literacy among the younger generation was basically eliminated you had basic schooling for girls as well as boys so you had better educated peasants than you had before the revolution and you also arguably uh, it was a benefit to have young people working in uh, disciplined groups under non-farm farm, family member direction rather than simply in a family-run farm uh, but the one big negative trend that had positive implication was that there was such bitter poverty and poor diets and this surf-like bondage in which rural people were walled off from the opportunity meager opportunities that were uh, available in the cities that when it became possible to move you had a huge it's the image i have is a giant spring that was held down and then the reform changing migration, loosening the migration restrictions made possible a huge flood of population and that into, into the floating population into the migrating into the cities. So this brings us up to the fourth stage in this scenario. So with decollectivization and not needing so many people to do the farming and the loosening of migration restrictions, you have this huge flood of migrants going into the cities. But this is a very crucial point that they went into the cities, as we all know, without full urban rights or, or full citizenship. Now, to back up a Bennett, the, the Ma- in the Mao era, the, as it may be already clear from the comments I've already made about the Mao period, Mao's image as a great champion of social equality is v- very much undeserved. The social order constructed by the Chinese communists was a very unequal and unfair system. Okay, it was not a highly egalitarian system. Uh, and there were two, in fact, systems in the late Mao era of ascribed status. You were born with a status and it was with you for the rest of your life. It was very difficult to change. Now, one of those was his agricultural hukou versus non-agricultural hukou. But the other was the class origin categories of the Mao era. So families were all classified by the class position of their family at the time of the revolution. So decades earlier. So a landlord family didn't own land, but their father or most likely their grandfather had owned land at the time of land reform in the late forties, early fifties. And then those class labels stuck with you. The class labels curiously followed your, were adopted from your father. The Huco status was adopted from your mother. So, (laughs) uh, and we can go into why that was, but in any case. um, So what's crucial is that in the reform era, the reformers in launching the market reforms decided to totally eliminate the class origin system. So they said it was outmoded, irrational, unfair. People should no longer be labeled at birth by what their grandparents had done. Uh, but, uh, and so the class origin labels were totally taken out of dossiers and hukou materials and so forth, didn't follow you around. But Dong and his colleagues decided, how they decided that, I wasn't allowed in the meetings, so I don't know, but they they essentially decided to leave the HUKO system designation of agricultural versus non-agricultural households intact. And it uh, essentially remains intact to this day, although there's some complications I'll get to in a moment. So what happens in the reform era is migrants become the central engine of China's economic boom. So you have millions of migrants, most of them young, uh, most with at most lower middle schooling, but no more, and very eager to leave the countryside and get jobs in towns and cities, often jobs, difficult and dangerous and dirty jobs that urbanites may not wanna have. And, uh, And they have, and of course, you know, the. The the um, export factories, the new rail lines, the high-rise building—all of that would not exist without migrant labor, booming it. But but equally important is the fact that their their uh, basic level of education and so forth uh, made it very possible, and their willingness to escape the countryside made it possible to exploit them. Uh, and keep their wages and fringe benefits very low. So they didn't get the same fringe. They could be working in a city alongside other people who had an urban hukou from birth, but they would not be getting the full package of social benefits. So their labors not only were essential to China's boom, but they made possible huge fortunes for, of course, for foreign companies investing in China, but also for Chinese entrepreneurs. So you had China today has more U.S. dollar billionaires than the United States does. Of course, not not on a per capita basis, but still. So here's a few random pictures of you know migrant laborers. As you, here, this one uh, may be a little bit bogus, but you can see you know Marx would have would have uh, supported the Foxconn workers in their protests. They don't seem to be too angry about whatever they're protesting about, maybe because they feel they have Marx helping them and supporting them. So in any case, so systematic urban bias is a central component of China's economic boom after 1978. Uh, and now how and why other decisions that supported this urban bias were adopted is a puzzling question, but systematically things were done which made it relatively difficult for rural origin youths to get any more education than lower middle schooling. And thus helped to keep their, them confined to relatively low wages and meager benefits. Uh, So we all know that for many years, if migrants went into the city and they had children there or brought the children with them, their children could not attend urban public schools unless they paid very high fees. Regulations changed uh, early in the new millennium so that after 2006, roughly, in some cities, they were able to attend, but only until lower middle school graduation. They weren't allowed to take the chungkow, the examine into upper middle schools in the cities and they either had to enter a vocational training school or they had to return to the rural origin place of their parents even if uh, they'd never lived there Um, and in some ways particularly in the largest cities in recent years and we have a fair amount of evidence about Beijing in particular that the public school doors have tightened more uh, have closed more tightly. So you have to, migrant families have to have more points for various kinds of things for owning property, for their educational levels, for home ownership and so forth, in order to get their kids into urban public schools, even up to the lower middle school level uh so this gives rise of course to the phenomenon of millions of left behind children i used to saw for many years the estimates that were 60 million of them now apparently there's a the uh um, the latest economist that i received says it's now maybe only half of that but still there are millions of children of migrants who are off in the city mother and father who are being tended by grandparents in the city who even if they do their best, they're not as well equipped perhaps to help their kids do well in school. And also rural upper middle schools have been too few and mostly you have to attend as boarders. So an, so an urban kid that gets into an upper middle school can live at home and go to an upper middle school. But in the countryside, almost always, For upper middle school, you have to board and so pay not only tuition fee because it's no longer a mandatory level of schooling, grades one to nine, but it's above that, but also you have to pay room and board. um, And one of the things that happened in the reform period is that the the number of Chinese students attending upper middle school uh, on the eve of the reforms in 1977 was 18 million Within a few years, it had dropped to barely more than a third of that. Um, so, largely due to rural upper middle school closures, plus huge numbers of dropouts, the opportunity costs now that uh, young people could make uh, make money by helping their family by uh, by labor earnings um, produced a huge drop in upper middle schooling, particularly in the countryside. So. So all of that means that when China, after 1998, expanded, had this dramatic campaign to expand college enrollments. There, are, uh, I, I don't have the latest figures, but maybe ten times as many college students today as there were before 1998. It overwhelmingly served urban hukou youths. The rural-urban gap in university opportunity, educational opportunities, actually widened even though there are many more university places than there were before 1998. Uh, The urban-rural income gap had declined in the first part of the reforms until the mid-1980s, but then it widened widened sharply to, according to some figures, something like four to one by 2007. This is from the CHIP surveys from, and in this, the urban Urban families used in this camp computation do not include urban migrants. So these are just the urban hukou population compared to the rural hukou population, but reached, again, an even higher level than had been historically the case under late Mao. So it went from three down to 2.5, according to some figures, in mid-'80s, and then began climbing again. There is some... The latest CHIP survey in 2013 shows some shrinkage Again, of the rural urban income gap, but still quite large, and debate about how how real that is, or um, I won't go into that at this point. So you have this growing rural urban rural income and education gaps of the reform era in- reinforce again this this prejudice against the rural population of lower sojour, a lower human quality. Uh, in, uh, in you get this new phrase, or at least new to me, low-end population, Didwan Renko, uh, occurring to refer to them. Um, and so they continue to be stigmatized. Uh, so, and incidentally, of course, China is rapidly urbanizing, but still today, China supposedly is about 60% urban, but that includes the migrants the migrants are sometimes maybe close to a third of that. So, so China is still more, in terms of youth, there are as much as two thirds, or Scott Rosell in his work claims 70% of Chinese youths today are of rural origin. Now, now, it is the case, and Winnie referred to that most recently, talking about the, the two meanings and all of that, that they're they are they're, they're There is increasing recognition that this system is basically unfair. You can't, you don't want to run a modern society by having people categorized at birth in a lower status position and denied opportunities that you allow your rest of the population. And there have been repeated claims over more than two decades now from official sources and commentators that China is about to or is on the way to eliminate the Hukou system discriminations, okay? But the surprising thing is how tenacious the system has, the discrimination has been and how many of these pledges have not been borne out in reality. Uh, in, in when Xi Jinping launched this urbanization campaign in 2014, it was accompanied by lots of... Propaganda that they were about to eliminate the hukou system discriminations and give uh, migrants full uh, urban uh, citizenship rights. And as a first step, that campaign was going to convert 100 million migrants to urban hukou by 2020. So, and of course, late in last year, that goal was declared achieved. Uh, but there were 270 million mi- rural urban migrants counted officially in 2014. 290 million in 2019. So there have been more migrants coming in than have been having their status uh, upgraded. And so far as we can tell, the upgrading is mostly taking place in small towns and cities and the largest cities are still being allowed or even encouraged to maintain very strict uh, discrimination against the migrants. However, the surveys, now we get to a little research that I've actually done myself rather than relying on all these other people whose work I read. But um, I did three national surveys and we asked questions about how people feel about the fairness or unfairness of various kinds of specific kinds of discrimination based upon hukou. And so this is from three national level surveys. These are of adults between the ages of 18 and 70. Um, in 2004, 2009, and 2014. Unfortunately, we haven't done one since then, but you can see, and I'm not gonna go through this whole, but basically, in principle at least, the large majority of respondents say that the Hukou system discriminations are unfair. So for instance, Fair that rural migrants cannot easily easily obtain urban hukou, only 15% thought that was fair in 2004, it's down to under 11%. Uh, Fair that migrants are not able to obtain urban welfare benefits, 9% goes down to 8%. Uh, Interestingly enough, urban hukou respondents in our surveys are more likely to be critical of hukou discrimination than our rural uh respondents although that doesn't mean that they in their daily lives treat the migrants who live around them and work around them as social equals but if that principle is very widely rejected Um, so that brings us finally uh, up to the final stage since about 2010 and what's happened now is that rural migrant labor is becoming more scarce. Migrant wages have finally been rising. Export manufacturing is becoming less important. All of these trends that you're familiar with, China is now trying to deal with the middle income trap, which is after being powered by mostly moving people from agriculture to uh, non-agricultural activities to start climbing into higher uh, higher, uh, quality manufactured goods and and a greater service economy and so forth. Uh, but the major obstacle to doing that is, the major determinant is human capital, the degree of education and skill of the population. And the striking thing, and this is particularly revealed in the surveys that Scott Roselle at Stanford and his colleagues have been doing, is, is that China, which has this historical legacy of Putting this great emphasis on education actually suffers from a hu- human capital development uh, uh, gap uh, compared to other developing countries at roughly the same level. And as I'll be talking about in a minute, since at least 2005, Chinese leaders have been trying r- rapidly to make up for this deficit by improving the educational opportunities for the rural origin population. But it's a scramble that still leaves the rural population less well treated. So this is one of the tables that I uh, draw from Roselle's work. And you see the top row of the table there in the left-hand column, China of its adult labor force uh, from 20 age 25 to 64, 30% have some high schooling. In other words, upper middle schooling. This compares to 34% in Mexico, 36% in Turkey, Indonesia is close to as low, 31, 46% in Brazil, so forth. And of course, more developed countries that China wants to become have much higher levels of of upper secondary schooling education. This is figures for 2015. This is another table from uh, Roselle's and his colleagues work and here you can see in 2005 look at the first row there this is this is now not of the adult labor force but 15 to 17 year olds those who would be in upper middle school okay and what percentage of them had some upper middle school upper middle schooling 90 percent of urban youths only 43 percent less than half as many rural youths in 2005. Well, you then have a sharp increase on the rural side so that in the final year here, 2015, you have 97% of urban youths have some upper middle schooling, 77% of rural youths. So they're closing the gap, but there's still a substantial gap and there's also a catch. And this, this I encourage people in the audience to read Scott Roselle's recently published book, co-authored book, Invisible China, so really centers on this human capital deficit problem for China and whether it will harm China's further economic rise. Uh, but but basically China has been struggling to overcome this legacy. But the main way they've been the government has been struggling to improve the educational opportunities for the rural population is through vocational schools so they've massively invested in both rural and urban areas in opening uh, and expanding vocational schools which are terminal and are supposed to train you for jobs in the economy and so forth uh, but there's we now have a substantial amount of research that shows that many of these vocational schools do a very poor job uh, there's one study that sh- sh- shows that student graduates actually had lower math scores than they did when they entered, which is kind of weird. Um, and uh, in many, they have higher dropout rates than rural academic, uh, upper middle schools. And they, they often lead to jobs that are no bi- better than migrant youths can get. Um, and so, and this, this has happened, even migrant children who are attending lower middle school in the cities Some of them are sitting next to urban hukou youth. Urban hukou youth can take the jungkau to get into upper middle school, but the migrant kids cannot. So they either have to go to these, apparently in many cases, lousy vocational schools which they may be subsidized to do, so there are financial incentives to encourage them to track them into these lower quality. So there's still this sort of sujer-based, you know, <laughs> rural people are of lower quality. They're not. They're not deserving of the same opportunities. Um, so you you the, you still see claims that the huko system has been abolished. This is a claim from the press last year, uh, or that it's about to be abolished. Uh, And there are some occasional promising signs among the the new documents I've just seen coming after the two meetings. Apparently you get points for uh, as a migrant, if you are a stable renter of urban housing, uh, rather than having to be a homeowner in order to get your kid into an urban public school. But nonetheless, it's still, it's still much harder for migrant kids to get into urban public schools and, and uh, uh, at least in la- in large cities in China where most of the opportunities are. Um, what, what, the, uh, what research shows is this claim that the 2014 policy eliminated the Hukou system, Basically, they said, you're not supposed to call them agricultural hukou versus non-agricultural hukou. You're supposed to call them local hukou versus outsider hukou, but, but the discrimination is the same. You just use different terminology. So it's a totally bogus claim. Um, so the 290 million non-local urban residents in China's cities still face multiple kinds of discrimination. Uh, even in the healthcare front that that Winnie uh, studies, um, there are studies that indicate that that uh, uh, migrants often ha- their the health insurance is back in their place of origin, not in in their urban place of employment. And if they seek a, a surgical procedure, say in an urban hospital, they get. uh, their reimbursement rate is less than if they go back to the hospital back in their original village. So so, uh, there's even, you know, (laughs) there's even one uh, report a few years ago that a family was pleading to have their recently deceased son reclassified as an urban hukou. Because he was killed in a traffic accident, and and at the time, anyway, I'm not sure if this is still true. You get the compensation based upon x times the average income of the huko that you belong to. So the family would get a better compensation for their dead son being killed in this traffic accident uh, if they could retro, you know, have after the fact have him reclassified as having an urban huko. Uh, so it's. It's still a very pervasive situation. So, and even if China could somehow wave a magic wand and totally eliminate the the hukou system, our our own society indicates that, you know, the legal barriers reinforcing racial inequalities in America may be mostly gone. But it but it takes decades, and and lots of effort to overcome the actual discriminatory attitudes and so forth that have been built up over the years. Um, Meanwhile, um, unless China can find ways to better utilize and promote the opportunities of its rural population, and particularly the educational opportunities of its young people, the majority of the population, this will interfere with China's efforts to realize Xi Jinping's China dream. And there, this is only one of the major challenges. China is rapidly aging, huge pollution problems, the inefficiency and debt riddenness of state enterprises and so forth. Uh, but China China's benefited in a pernicious way by its exploitation of rural people by holding them down and keeping their wages low and so forth for decades, but now they're beginning to pay the price. So whether the leaders can find ways to overcome this, stay tuned. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Madi, for a wonderful and informative talk. Um, there are a number of questions already, but I'm gonna ask you a question first. You know, recently, um um, issued a, some kind of announcement saying that um, except for 30 cities, the biggest and most populated ones, the other cities are going to uh, implement, um, to, to abolish the hukou system, so to let the rural population integrated with the urban population what is your perspective of how likely that is going to be real versus an aspiration again?
1: Well, as I've already indicated, I, I'm very skeptical or I want to see the results. And and unfortunately, we don't have, at least I haven't seen good research on small towns and cities and how they treat migrants in them. So most of the research, unfortunately, is on these large cities that are still not being prohibited from discriminating in this fashion but but the uh, you know the the, the sort of plot promises and pledges to eliminate the hukou system and its discriminatory impact have gone on for so long and have been uh, you know not realized that it makes me skeptical uh, Cameron Chan that I mentioned earlier back in 2008 he and a, another scholar published an uh, article in china quarterly saying you know is china abolishing the hukou system because because back then in a, in the first years of the new millennium there were claims that china was about to abolish the hukou system and basically he he and his co-author said eh, don't don't you believe it it's not really happening or it's just i mean there're tiny steps around the edges like you know okay now urban migrant uh, kids can attend urban public schools in big city, even in big cities, but only through lower middle school graduation. Well, research also indicates that if, uh, you know, if, if your kid is gonna be forced out after nine years of schooling, and if you want them to go on to maybe get a high school, academic high school in college, you're gonna to have to go to the countryside, maybe you don't want to keep them in the urban school for 9 years and uh, so we have studies that show parents you know sending their kids to urban public schools for elementary school but then lower middle school ha- having them sent back to the countryside to be again cared for as a left behind child mm-hmm. so I, I i don't know i mean i i the so that's really the conundrum it's it's such mm-hmm. a pernicious system, it's so manifestly unfair, Mm -hmm. okay? And everybody agrees it's unfair. There's no, uh, you know, the the whole idea of, there are people, as you know, that write things about how, uh, about China in the reform era has now become a meritocratic society. Well, a meritocratic society does not categorize people into a lower status, Mm-hmm. For a majority of the population that do not get the same treatment and are not given the same incentives, encouragement, and opportunities as as the 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 rest of the population, it's just. I mean, that's you know the socialist formula of compensation from each according to his ability to each according to his contributions. Well, yeah. it's it's not according to your contributions if you have a different hookah than than somebody else. So I, I'm I'm just, I, I hope it will happen in some fashion, uh, but I think so far as I can see, Xi Jinping on this ground, he may be very bold in other areas, but he's been very timid mm. in things related to social equality and particularly the Hukou system. You know, he has not dramatically uh, tried to dismantle it, and, and so I'm waiting to see what comes from these, problem, these pledges and what actual form they will take.
0: Mm. So that brings me to a question from uh, Bill Shao. He said, Marty, what a fantastic informative talk. Thank you. How did the CCP's ideological authorities explain the class distinction and its discrimination under either communism or some theory of socialism? <laughs>
1: uh well the, the the they they do not treat this as a class difference and, and in fact rural versus urban even western sociology has trouble figuring how to how to deal with you know so typical class frameworks are mainly concerned with urban you know the you know manual workers versus office workers versus exec you know uh mental workers and so forth so uh but but clear clearly in uh, in most periods they argued well there's a necessary division of labor and we have to keep in the Mao period they clearly argued that the, we need to keep the rural population in place we can't have them flooding into the cities and so forth so there's uh so there is this i mean it's again a paradoxical thing fa- fact that you <laughs> You, you you can treat the rural people more nastily because you feel you can take advantage of them because they're not gonna they're not gonna make a revolution if they don't have a communist party to lead them to make a revolution. Whereas the urban people might. So you have to you have to make sure you keep the unruly's down in the countryside. And and it's it's not really it's not really justified in sort in sort of class terms so far as I can tell. Um, it's just a but, but nonetheless, it's 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 a you know a complicated legacy that really I I as you can tell mainly blame on Mr. Mao, but but also on his successors for deciding that this was one nasty feature of their social stratification system that they needed to preserve rather than and and maybe in fact if if they had eliminated the hukou system when they had eliminated the class origin labels in 1979, maybe China would not have developed as rapidly in the reform period, uh, you know, because they would not have been able to, you know, exploit <laughs> uh, migrant labor so uh, very comprehensively as they were able to do.
0: So I have a few questions, which is uh, looking at the changing realities in China, whether that might either explain the persistence of, um, not having the rural population integrated with the urban or actually push um, the uh, government to try to bring the rural population to the urban area. So let me start with the first one. This is from Andrew Rachofsky. His question is, um, in the urban area, obviously there are a lot of fiscal problem in terms of revenue and supporting various kinds of um, social program, including pension, healthcare, etc. And do you think that is one of the realities that the urban area will not be able to absorb large amount of rural people into the cities and support them with um, and have the fiscal capacity to support them for all the public um, benefit program? Is that one underlying reality of why cities are actually resisting accepting rural people there beyond just uh, ideology or class?
1: Well, certainly that is a central concern, and that is a central claim about why they, why local city authorities resist opening the doors wider and eliminating hukou discrimination. But but the people who make the decisions about this society could decide to change the fiscal system and the way it operates, so they could have, for instance, urban public schools as in other societies, could have their funding determined by the number of students that need to be accommodated in the, by who resides in that neighborhood. My understanding is that the, that the accounting used, maybe even today in urban large city public schools, is the, the, the funding that a school gets is determined by the urban hukou population it served without counting the migrants kids who may want to enroll there as well who also live there so so they in other words they they China has lots of fiscal resources if they want to use them in a way that's necessary and um, you one can even think of you know when I started my career I I had to study China from outside from Hong Kong which which I enjoyed thoroughly doing research of Hong Kong uh, interviewing refugees and so forth but And and I don't wanna say things in favor of colonialism, but you had a huge influx of people into Hong Kong over the years. And the government in Hong Kong responded by things like building resettlement estates, huge public housing developments and so forth to accommodate. Now, China is beginning to do some more public housing kind of things, but most most migrants, if they're not living in work unit Dormitories are are you know going in a private housing market, renting from suburban peasants and so forth, or or building shacks on the top of you know it's you know the the so there's there's a there's a there's a need to accommodate if you're going to make use of the talents of these people, you got to treat them better and that they're so the government has lots of financial resources it can use and it can yeah. change the way in which local governments get resources so that they can accommodate and deal with uh, this, the the migrant population. And, uh, but I think still, you know, the mindset of China's leaders is still, you know, it's even the anti-poverty campaign Mm. and it's supposed great success. A lot of that can be seen as let's do something to keep them down on the farm so Mm. that they don't want to come off into the cities. So we'll eliminate Extreme poverty in the countryside, and then, you know, gradually improve rural economies, so people won't come streaming into the cities because we don't want them. Mm. So, I, I don't know. It's mm.
0: so. that's two yeah. question, which is actually um, a a follow up to what you just said, um, one is um, the from Sam Jackson that um, first of all, he said, thank you for a fascinating lecture, that um, there seems to be recently a lot of um, 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 uh, efforts to try to encourage the migrant workers to return to the countryside, to establish new business. And there are also alternative models of trying to build up like village tourism and all that, but it's trying to boost the rural economy to attract people to either stay here, to return there and do you see that as actually a way to equalize the urban rural differences
1: well I, I think i think all of those things are very valuable and should be encouraged okay so that so that uh you know so, and, and there have been very considerable improvements in like roads connecting distant villages that where people had to walk for hours and so forth and uh, so it makes it much easier to get around um, and so i th- I think it 's very good to encourage more rural opportunities uh, but still, the fact of the matter is people people should i think, as they did before the revolution, have the option of if if they 're not satisfied with the local opportunities of leaving and trying. To, you know, to uh, make their fortune elsewhere and bring family members along with them, whatever. And uh, so I think, uh, you know, I, I I don't, I think that the, a lot of the, I would say still the, a lot of the rural urban income and other inequalities are are due to the fact that there is Still not equal treatment in terms of benefits and, and other things uh, for 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 migrants, even though there are clearly have been efforts to improve the situation. So you know, labor law that says you're not supposed to pay less to somebody because they're a migrant and so forth. But um, I I don't know. I I, uh, I I think in in general this this sort of categorical thinking behind the still socialist mindset of China's leaders seems to me to be a, a, a central problem here. And, mm. and you should be able to treat people as individuals judged by their potential and talents rather than in a categorical fashion.
0: Mm. So there's a follow-up question from Bill Shao again. Um, he asked if you would elaborate on how likely um, the labor shortage created by aging be uh, to provide an impetus for um, China to, because of the need to rely on younger rural people for economic growth to then open up that integration a bit more.
1: I, I mean that's clearly already happening. There, I mean the the wages are improving, and and there have been some improvements in even I think even in healthcare. I think that the rural, uh, the the village cooperative medical insurance system that Bill Shaw played a role in helping to uh, create and expand has now been merged with the lower level urban uh, medical insurance. System for people that are not part of a, a, a for, you know large formal employment system. So, so there are a number of things that are already in place that are that are happening, and I think that happen have to happen even more. Uh, but it's but it's still you know you know what the obstacles are. It's and how to overcome them. I don't know. And there's a recent study that shows that in Shanghai, I think it was, that even if, even a family, even if a person has had their transformed to an urban hukou, uh, that people, uh, people who were not originally Shanghai hukou residents have something like a 68% lower chance of home ownership, even if you control for age and educational level and every, you know, the standard kind of socioeconomic variables have a 68% lower chance of being a homeowner than than even if they had changed their hukou than people who had a lifelong shanghai hukou and if they came from uh, uh, if they uh, are migrants from the outside whether they're from a urban or rural area it's like 90% lower or even more than 90% lower chance of home so so that you know the these are very sort of high barriers that have been built up over time, and how to overcome them. Uh, you know, yeah. I, you know. The, I mean, there are, of course, societies that engage in things like affirmative action. How well those work, but you know, <laughs> you you could think of you know, home loans, preferably for those with outsider huko. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I don't know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's just—it seems to me, whenever I look, at, part, partly this, of course, is—I grew up in a small town myself, so the idea that <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you should be penalized if you uh, if you're not from the big city—it uh, strikes me as offensive, as you can probably tell. So
0: there's a question from Andrew Stocko. Um His question is that. In the past, it seems that the Chinese policymakers justified the hukou system as a safety valve on social unrest. And do you think that the parties still see it this way, or is the continued restrictions um, of the integration driven more by the urban middle class to retain their benefits vis-a-vis the rural dwellers?
1: Well, I, I don't, I don't. Really, I, I'm not sure that I understand the argument about a safety valve. I mean, they you mm. know the so people have been allowed to move since the 1980s. So the, the, uh, and um, and they're they're less likely than they were. There there certainly are these strange efforts from time to time under Xi Jinping to encourage urbanites to go to the countryside to uh one of, one of my one of my doctoral students who ha, uh, is a researcher in the academy of social science now he he had to go and uh, serve as a local official in a county in Sichuan so <laughs> so to show his you know i don't know that that, that he's uh, has has the party's interests at stake or something like that um but uh but but I, but people are less likely than they were in the Mao period to be in danger of losing their uh, you know losing their urban hukou and being forced to go to the countryside. Um, mm. so I am not I'm not sure that I understand the premise of the question I guess. Sure.
0: Uh, there's a question since you talk about Sichuan there's a question from Yves um Tiberheim. The question is, um, Chongqing was supposed to be a big city of experimentation um, of trying to get the rural hukou into urban hukou with land buyout scheme, etc. cetera. Um, do you know what have been the outcomes of those experiments?
1: I, I wish I knew more about it. I, I have one of my <laughs> remaining doctoral students at Harvard, Amy Zhang has been doing field work in Chongqing and interested in the question of but her focus is a little different. It's on on people like who, from a rural area, get go to college and then end up working in a white collar job in chungking or people people from the countryside who start a business. So so they're, they're not the standard floating population kind of category. But uh, but the these efforts in Chongqing are mostly associated with Bo Xilai's period of rule there. And he was seen, as I understand it, I haven't, I'm not, I am not have did not follow this closely, interested in building more public housing that migrants uh, could live in and so forth. Um, but I, but I, but, you know, after his downfall, lots of things that he was associated with became more problematic, I assume, but I, I, I haven't I don't know enough about things like, is, does Ching, Ching do a better job of allowing uh, migrant children to maybe even continue to beyond lower middle schooling into upper middle schooling, or even to take the gaokao in the, in the city instead of going back to their native place. And I, I wish I knew more about it, but I just oh, don't have the, the evidence. Right. Yeah, I'm just yeah nice I, I think it, one one of the things that I, I've talked to a number of other researchers dealing with these issues, like Eli Friedman, who's a sociologist at Cornell, and and uh, and everybody says the hukou system is complex, but a lot of it is not nationally stipulated. In other words, a lot of it is local adaptations of a basically discriminatory system, but then the specifics of how you get into school, for instance, in in this city and that city are are different because local authorities set up different rules with the same general intentions, but they're not identical. So all of that means it's very hard to study because there is variation from place to place.
0: Right. I think your common your your the theme that you have been emphasizing on is people could move. It's not about the movement, but once you move to the city, are you given equal opportunity to right. be integrated? That that would give you the opportunity to grow and to be really treated equal. Right after you integrate there, so it's not just about the move, but once
1: right. you
0: move there, do you get the education? Therefore, to allow you to become equal. As your urban partners and uh, uh, counterparts, um, so one question from Zhang Yuan is um, why why did you not see uh, do we not see major protests or collective uh, movement among the migrants against these kind of treatments or the unfairness?
1: That's that's a very good question. I think my, in in my own surveys, the thing that strikes me is that m- migrants. Uh, on the one hand they, they are so systematically discriminated against but on the other hand their reference group is often still what's going on back in the village and what their life would have been like if they had not been a migrant and of course migrants also have the opportunity, just because you migrate here and take this job you're not obligated to stay there so there's a lot of mobility from place to place and so forth so this this so all of that means that they're that, that um, there's very little, and it's also because migrants often work among people that are also migrants, but from very different parts of the country with different, so so developing sort of solidarity, um, you know, to protest the hukou system itself, when migrants, for the most part, feel that they're doing much better than they would have been doing if they were stuck in the village. So they, you know, they, they at least in our surveys, they don't see see themselves mainly as, am I doing as well as this person that, that uh, you know, that grew up in the city that I'm working in now. Uh, they're, they're, they're mainly thinking about themselves compared to other migrants and compared to people back in the rural areas they came from. So, that, so the reference group thing does not give rise to uh, easy solidarity uh, to see, you know, all of us migrants, Sh- shared grievances ought to be bundled together and and protest the system itself. But I think it's 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 true that there that there's you know we don't I didn't find I expected to find in my surveys because the surveys were about our people, do people feel the current inequalities are fair and unfair and migrants are more likely than either rural or urban hukou stable people to feel that the discrimination is discrimination is unfair, but in terms of other features of you know who gets rich and who doesn't, should the government be doing more? That migrants do do not stand out in our surveys as having, you know, greater anger and hostility about the unfairness of the inequalities overall in society. Uh, and incidentally, the the you know the the main one of the main findings from the the earlier surveys up to the present is that. The surprising thing that you, is that rural people themselves, people still in the countryside, who you can argue, particularly in early years, um, you know, would have e- also very strong reasons for feeling that they're at the bottom of the heap and that the system is unfair. They tended to have more positive views about, about inequalities than, than urban people did. But this this the first survey we did in 2004 was in the wake of ji's downsizing of the urban SOE economy in the late 90s. Right. So there were so there were a lot of urban people who had been been laid off, you know, Shagang. So they they you know so there was a lot of unease in that first survey, particularly among urban people, because they didn't feel it was the inequalities were as fair as they had come to expect. Whereas the rural people, even though their their incomes were much lower, their opportunities were much more meager, but they, they were m- much more positive and optimistic and thought that they were gonna be doing even better in the future. So right. so in every society, it's not your objective position that matters for feelings of injustice and justice. It's your, it's your sort of relative expectations yeah, right. and reference groups.
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely. And that brings to the point that, um, and going into the future, the, the expectation of the rural population is also different from before, because 10, 15 years ago, if they can go to a manufacturing um, industry and earn more than if they were in the rural area, there's already growth and expectation. But after this group of people that have been urbanized in some way, knowing what is yeah. possible, Then, what would take to the next step of being urbanized that would make them satisfied is also more challenging than the previous generation, as well. Um, So, We have reached time. There's still a few other questions that we can send to you. But I also want to tell you that there are a lot of uh, the comments that were sent through. It's basically just say, thank you, Marty, for such an excellent and informative talk. And thank you. And so I just want to send you all these collective uh, compliments and uh, gratitude of you. Um, sharing your many years of research on the food system. And as you say, stay tuned and see what is happening into the future because they are so essential in terms of thinking about China's future economic growth, inequality, and implication on different social programs, including on health that I personally work on as well. So we hope to have you back for that follow-up in a year or so. And thank you very much for everyone who attended. And until next time.
1: Well, thank you very much for yeah. inviting me. I, I enjoyed it.
0: Yes, we hope to stay in touch and uh, to keep each please other on the please. work that we're doing. Yes.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: So, I mean, on health, there's, uh, as you say, um, definitely um, they're, do- they're, they're establishing a policy, which you know, called EDGY, right? You can still get reimbursed. Um, when you're in another place, but um, but it's a lower reimbursement rate and all of that. But I think that might be changing in a sense that all the risk pooling has been now um, upgraded from a rural county all the way to the province, at least. Oh, right. um, hmm. So I think some of these more changes, at least in the area of health, is equalizing a bit more. But... Okay. That's different from opportunities of growth right. and right. On employment. And that's different. So right. thank you very much, Mari. Okay. Thank next you. Time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.